I do come to your word this morning. I pray, Lord, it to be your word that goes out. As we talk about a subject that as a people, perhaps as a nation, is an uneasy one. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be, uh, to be gracious. I pray you would help me to be clear. And Lord, let us stay within the bounds of your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So several months ago, as I typically do, I, I sat down and began to uh, kind of plan out, usually two or three months in advance, I start to think about what, uh, what the Lord would have me to talk about when we're not in Job, as we have been in the, uh, in the winter, or in Matthew, as we are in the fall. Uh, in those in-between times, I try to discern and pray and meditate on what the Lord would have me to talk about. Well, uh, I got to this part of the calendar, and I was telling somebody Friday night, there is something unique about this point in the calendar, the post-Easter, pre-Memorial Day time. Uh, It is a time when most people are here at church, uh, and it's right before the summer comes, and and everybody gets busy and begins to scatter. And so I was kind of uh, looking at what I should do, and and for help, I I started looking back. I've now been here for, uh, this is the finishing out of my fourth year. So I have a few years behind me now, kind of went back and began to look. What was I talking about in that space of time? Well, surprise, surprise, I uh, figured out that for some odd reason, and I I guarantee you this was not done on purpose, but for some odd reason, every time we get to that post-Easter, pre-Memorial Day uh, time of the calendar, I seem to be talking about what most people would consider controversial. Something that is probably uh, one of those subjects that don't get talked about very much uh, from the pulpit. After I figured that out, I went home to my wife and I said, maybe subconsciously I do this right before the summer so that I have the whole summer to look for a job. That's a joke. (sighs) But I, I originally, probably back in November and December, had thought that maybe what we needed to talk about was the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. It's a topic that's come up, questions that I've gotten about that uh, topic, and, and so I thought maybe that's the direction we should go. Now, two things happened. First of all, as I continued to plan, I realized that when we got back to Matthew, we were going to deal with that top- topic, and there was no reason to go over it twice. The second thing is, is that over the last six months, uh, this topic of racism has really kind of become the forefront, uh, or come to the forefront as a national conversation. Uh, and something uh, began to move in me and began to bother me about that conversation. Uh, and I'll share some of that with you this morning. But I felt like, and I really felt that God's burden, I feel like by the direction of your Holy Spirit, this was where I was led. Now, I want to say this up front. The text we have in front of us this morning here in Acts 17 is not about racism. Uh, the book of Acts, we know, is written by uh, Luke. Uh, who's an incredible historian from an archaeological point of view. Uh, This book has been confirmed as true again and again and again. He is a reliable historian, uh, even from a a non-religious point of view. Uh, But that is not Luke's point. Luke's point is not simply to tell his history. His, uh, His point, as he tells us, is to give us confidence. Confidence in two areas. First of all, that who Jesus said he was, and who Jesus is, is in fact who Jesus is. That the things he did, he actually did. And Luke wanted to have an organized account so that we could have the confidence that what we read about Jesus is true. And then we go to the book of Acts, and what he wanted to do is show us that the power of the gospel is true. As Luke records the movement of the gospel to various 
places and preach to various types of people, watching those lives be changed, watching the world be flipped upside down by the power of the message of Jesus Christ, by the good news of Jesus Christ. And so that leads to this point of the book where Luke is kind of focused here on the Apostle Paul in his missionary journeys. We get to chapter 17, and here we are in Greece, in the city of Athens. The arrival of the gospel to what was the intellectual center of ancient history. If you want to think about it this way, this would be the arrival of the gospel to the state of Nebraska for the very first time, preached in the city of Lincoln on the campus of the University of Nebraska. That would be close to the atmosphere that Paul would have encountered as he walked into Athens with the intention of continuing to preach the gospel. Now, what I think we have in our text this morning is the basis by which we need to have a conversation on the issue of racism and the gospel. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at some some big ideas. I'm not going to delve and go deep into each one of these ideas, because what we're going to do is come back over the next few weeks and re-encounter these ideas uh, more fully. But what I just want to do to you, give, or do to you, I'm sorry, what I want to give to you this morning is really what I think biblically is the basis or the foundations of the conversation on this issue. So let me give those to you. Number one, the unbelieving world, the unbelieving world is not afraid to preach its theories. The unbelieving world is not afraid to preach its theories. The text tells us Paul arrives here into Athens and immediately he's stirred up. He sees what's going on around him. He becomes impassioned to begin to preach the gospel. He doesn't wait for the rest of his companions to show up. We're told in the text he goes immediately to the synagogue where the religious people are. And then from there, as he disputed with them about Jesus, he then moved to the marketplace where the common people are. And began to tell them about Jesus. And eventually this leads to an invitation by the intellectual, the educated, the wealthy of Athens for Paul to come and preach the gospel to them. What I want you to see first of all here is that they're curious. It says right in the text, they're curious about what Paul has to say simply because they had never heard about Jesus before. So what I want you to understand is that what Paul brought to Athens, having already had a synagogue in the city, was something different than just simply Old Testament Jewish ideas. They clearly could perceive that what Paul was preaching was something that they had never heard before. Now the second thing we have to to see here in the text is that this is the atmosphere of the city. As the text tells us, this was their pastime. This was the thing to do, to go and to learn something new and to tell something new. Again, as I said, this is the intellectual center of the ancient world. This grand uh, empire called Rome was built on the philosophies and ideas that came out of Greece. Our democratic republic comes out of the conversations that were had by ancient philosophers here in the city of Athens in Greece. 
This is a, this is a place that has shaped the world where, where debates have been had on, on some of the greatest metal, metaphysical theories that have ever been presented. You're talking about Socrates and, and Aristotle and, and Plato, all of these guys who came along and, and were of incredible mind. And so this is the atmosphere of Athens. And so you have to understand something. Most of our university system today here in our country is built on the philosophies that came out of Athens, Greece. This is why it seems even today in the university setting, there almost seems to be a race to come up with the most insane theories and ideas. Because it's still the atmosphere of the university setting from an intellectual point of view to be the first person to promote an idea, to be the first person to have their idea published. This was the atmosphere of Athens. They wanted to hear Paul, not because they were interested spiritually, but simply because it was something new. Now, there's another thing I want to point out here. As we see in the New Testament, a problem that happened, begins to happen in the church. And that is this, that the theories and ideas, like what they would have shared in Athens, Greece, in these intellectual circles began to make their way into many New Testament churches. And what we have in our New Testament are multiple letters from apostles addressing these churches, letting them know that this theory or idea that you're trying to integrate into your Christianity is not compatible. And he warns them, and we get to the book of Revelation, where we finally see that some churches had so embraced the theories and ideas of the unbelieving world that the gospel had been pushed out and the light was gone. Now, we have to talk about, or we said, let me put it this way. We saw last year, as we talked about feminism and the introduction of new ideas of what it meant to be female, what it meant to be a woman in the world. And we saw last year, as we talked about feminism, how the church responded poorly to these new ideas in theories. And unfortunately, we have to deal with the same problem when it comes to the issue of race. Now, slavery is not, was not new when the Atlantic slave trade began. Multiple different ethnicities, multiple different countries around the world had practiced and had been put into slavery. But what was new with the Atlantic slave trade was a new theory that had made its way through Europe, had been embraced by the intelligentsia of that day, was the idea of Darwinism. And as the European powers began to colonize Africa, it was not simply the idea that they separated white men from black men. Through the theory of Darwinism, they came up with these ideas that certain human characteristics, outward characteristics, were desirable for the evolving of the human species. And surprise, surprise, one of those characteristics was light skin. So when the Europeans began to colonize Africa, they, not, they did not just separate black and white. They actually would even separate lighter-skinned Africans from darker-skinned Africans. The people who were brought over here on the Atlantic slave trade were people what are known as sub-Saharan Africans. They have deep, dark skin. And this idea of, sub, uh, of light skin being a, 
uh, a positive characteristic, a positive thing for the evolving of the human species, still exists in that part of Africa today. In the 1990s, the slaughtering of people in Rwanda was entirely based on this theory. That the lighter-skinned Africans were superior than the darker-skinned Africans. Well, unfortunately, as I, as I mentioned, with even in the New Testament times, this theory of Darwinism began to be embraced by the church itself. This new idea, this exciting idea of what these positive characteristics were, how we were going to help the human species evolve, this was embraced, sadly, by the church. And this is sadly a history that we have to deal with. Now, we can be glad for a couple of things. We can be glad, first of all, that immediately upon the spread of Darwinism and the enslavement of sub-Saharan Africans, there were people immediately in the church who began to preach and to teach and to speak against this. From the very beginning of its introduction into Africa and then eventually into the New World, there were those who came and stood up and said, this is wrong, this is evil, these African men are just that, men like us, made in the image of God. They were there, they were loud, and they spoke heavily against this idea. We can be glad for the fact that there were faithful men in the church who spoke loudly against this idea. Unfortunately... We also have to deal with the fact the men who preached and taught and spoke against what was going on in the Atlantic slave trade in the introduction of Darwinism into the church were labeled as radicals and sent to the margins. And those who were not labeled as radicals were told they just simply needed to be patient, that everything would work itself out. And those who weren't told to be patient were told to be quiet because there was too much power and too much money, then they, the claim was that if they continued to speak against this practice and they continued to speak out against this idea of Darwinism, they were going to split the church. Well, that was their justification for keeping quiet. And that leads us to today. Because of the sinful and evil legacy that we have as a nation, we today have a significant problem in this country, on the issue of ethnicity. And the problem that I hear, the, what stirred me up to talk about this, is we can look back in history and we can see the implementation of Darwinism into society and we can see the consequences and we can look and we can say, that unbelieving world introduced one of their theories and we saw the result of it. The problem that we have today is that same unbelieving world is trying to introduce new theories to deal with this. And what I don't understand, what bothers me, what stirs me, which upsets me greatly, is that the unbelieving world will not be timid about preaching and teaching their theories. So why are we? Why is it that it's so quick for us to say this is not a church issue, this is a social issue, this is a political issue? Brothers and sisters, the unbelieving world is full of terrible ideas and theories. And they will not hesitate 
as you see in Athens, as Paul encountered it and what was stirred in him, is they did not fail to build monuments to their theories. They did not fail to build temples to their ideas. And so Paul was stirred to speak. And by God's grace and mercy, so will we. So number one, we have to deal with the fact that the unbelieving world will not fail to preach its theories. Number two, the second basis by which we must have this conversation on race is that, number two, the distinctions in people. Distinctions in people are put there by God. Starting in verse 22, Paul actually begins to preach. And he says, I behold, you are a very superstitious people. I think this is kind of like a little poke in the eye. For all of their intelligentsia, for all of their learning, for all of their education, they were continuously superstitious, building temples to this God and monuments to that God. They were continually building up these things because they were afraid of missing out. So Paul brings their attention to one specific monument to the unknown God. Paul says, this is the God I've come to tell you about. Now I want you to pay attention here in the text. What does he tell them? The first thing he lays out before them is that this is the God who made the world and everything in it. He wants them to understand the creation and all that they see and experience in this life. The change of seasons and the geography that they see, none of it is by accident. Second, in the face of all of these temples and monuments, he makes sure that they understand that God is not confined to a single place. That was a a, a highly respected theory in that day, that there were perhaps many gods, but they were confined to geographical and uh, uh, ethnic people groups. They were limited in in what they could do for other people. And he's saying, no, this, this God is not limited or confined in that way. He lays out before them that this is a God who needs nothing from them. That, that he does not need them in their, their, their worship. He does not need them. He is self-sustained, self-content. He, he does not need them. But this is the God they need, uh, they, that these people need from him. It is he, as Paul says, who gives all life and breath. And then I want you to note this statement. He says, he made of one blood all nations. And he determined their time. That would mean he would, where they would live and when they would live. So let me just stop there and explain what Paul has just said. He's explained to them the fundamental ideas of God as it's found in the scriptures. And then he turns around and he says, look, you see, or I'll put it this way. If you this morning are a European descendant and you are male and you're living in Nebraska and you're living in the year 2018, what Paul is laying out to the Athenians, he lays out to you, the God is one who's decided that you were a European descendant, that you do live in Nebraska, and that you live in 2018. But note what Paul says about that. That God controls where they live and when they live, so that it would give them the best possibility of knowing him. So if this morning you are a European descendant, and you are male, and you live in Nebraska, and it's 2018, this place, this time, is the best opportunity you will ever have to know the God of the universe. 
He is in control. He puts this in order. And so Paul closes out by saying to them, what I, ultimately the point he is trying to make to them is that their ideas about God are wrong. Now that concept of distinctions, and that distinctions meaning people when they live and where they live and who they are, those distinctions are something that is clearly preached throughout the scriptures. For example, at the very beginning, God intends for there to be two genders or two sexes, and we talked about this last year. That the differences in being men and women were put there by God for help for us to understand him and help for us to make him known. We see clearly in Scripture and just in the experiences of life that God has clearly, uh, naturally talented certain people to do certain things. And he's naturally talented other people to do other things. The Psalms take us to creation, to the stars, and to the sun, and to the moon, and to the meadows, and to the mountains. And tell us that all of these distinctive things... Preach to us about who God is, and all of these distinctions help us to preach who He is to others. Jesus even brings up the birds and the flowers to help us understand. And even when God calls and chooses Israel, He says, I chose you. And He says, I didn't choose you because of some wonderful quality in you. Is actually, he immediately after telling them he chose them, he gives them a list of things, a list of things that are terribly, terribly wrong with them. But what he announces to them is, I have chosen you, I have put you, this are, these are God's words, not mine, I have put you in a place of privilege. The Bible teaches us that men are raised up into power and authority, into riches by the hand of God. And they are torn down from their authority and power and riches by the hand of God. Jesus, even in his day, acknowledged the authority of the sons of Aaron, telling one man, go and tell the sons of Aaron, for they sit in Moses' seat, a place of privilege that is theirs. So let's put it bluntly. That the world that God has created, including the people that are in it, is not a colorless world. It is not a flat world. We clearly see that the Bible teaches that God put all of these distinctions in people on purpose. So the differences even in skin color, in bone structure, in muscle development, in natural skills, and adaptation, all put there by God. All valued by Him. Because all of them speak to who he is and helping us understand who he is. And so therefore all of these distinctions must be valued. And so our forefathers made the mistake of trying to integrate this new theory of Darwinism. And what came out was not Christianity, but a theory that some of these traits that God purposely put in people should be valued more than others. But we also must deal with something that perhaps is going to make us uncomfortable. And that is the idea of privilege and authority. As I pointed out to you, it is God who said to Israel, I chose you, I put you in this place 
of privilege and authority. We, do not, we should not deny the idea of authority. We should not deny the idea of privilege because this is a concept that God uses. He raises up son, he puts down others, and then he turns around and does it again. To help you understand what I'm trying to talk about, let me turn your attention to the country of South Africa. Colonized, conquered by Europeans. And after Europeans conquered that nation, they built a nation whose laws and systems were entirely to the taste of Europeans. Down to the food that was served on the table of the common man was influenced by European domination of South Africa. Now, what does God call men to do when they're put in a place of privilege and authority? To spread righteousness and to protect justice. They're just two simple ideas. If you find yourself in a place of privilege and authority, that you are to protect, or you are to spread righteousness and to protect justice. Did that happen in South Africa? No. Africans could not get justice. Africans were the ones who were left behind. Africans were the ones who starved. But why do I bring up South Africa? Because over the last 30 years, the whole dynamic has changed. Today, the African is in power. And and the country is being shaped by African ideas and African concepts. But did they learn from their history? No, because just 30 days ago, these Africans passed the law that it was okay to confiscate the property of any pale-skinned person. So what was God's desire of them in in the place, if you were European in that time, what was God's desire of you? To spread righteousness and to to protect justice. And now what has God called to the African who is now in in power in South Africa? To spread righteousness and to protect justice. So let us be honest. This, This country was founded by Europeans. It was constructed, and its values are European. Those who had money and power and influence were European. This is privilege. Now, I want you to hear this word appropriately. In the Northeast, 200 years ago, in the Northeast, to be born into a Puritan family was privilege. To be born into a Quaker family was not. 200 years ago, to be born into a tobacco farming family in the South was privilege. To be born as one of the slaves who worked that farm was not. Out West, 200 years ago, to be born into a banking family was a, was a privilege. To be born into a gold mining family was not. We have to understand this concept. God does not call us to flatten out these distinctions. He does not call us to repent of the fact that you have privilege. He does not call us to repent of the fact that you have authority. His call to repent is when that authority and privilege is abused. When you have a place of privilege and authority, and you fail to spread righteousness and to project, uh, protect justice, that is what you must repent of. And this brings us back to the foolishness of the unbelieving world because today what the unbelieving world says you must repent of is the fact that you have privilege, the fact that you have authority. In other words, to repent simply for being white. But that is foolishness. 
And we must call them out on it. But we also must recognize that perhaps for some of us, there is a need to repent over the abuse of fail- and failures that we have had in our privilege and in our authority. And just so that we round this out to understand it from both sides. If you were born to a two-parent home, to a mom and dad that loved you, that is privilege. And in that place of privilege, you are called to spread righteousness and you are called to protect justice. If you were born to a single mother, to a dad who wasn't home, that is not privilege. But God calls you to repent if you have envy or bitterness towards those who had mom and dad at home. Number three. Again, these are just big ideas. We'll come back and visit each and every one of them. But number three, lastly this morning, and I'm almost out of time. Number three, mankind, humankind, however you want to put it, mankind is united by its need to repent and believe. Mankind is united by its need to repent and believe. So two truths we've laid out. First of all, the world is never going to fail to preach its foolishness. And secondly, that all the distinctions in climate and geography and in people and in power and in places of privilege, all of that is put there by God. We are different from one another. And as the scriptures have taught us, this is about us understanding God and us being able to display God more fully in these distinctions. We are not called to cover them up. We are not called to flatten them out. But there is one thing that unites us in all of these distinctions. Our condemnation. As Paul says to the Athenians, we are of one blood. We have one father, Adam, who sank us as a human race and made us enemies of God. We are united in the fact that we are liars and murderers and unthankful and greedy and slanderous and lustful and immoral and thieves and adulterers and more. From our heads to our toes to the very corner of our lives all the way to the bottom, every human being is condemned. Paul says that God even held back. King James says that God even winked at this reality. He kept, he held back from destroying these men and their nations so that he might show them mercy by bringing them the gospel. And so Paul preaches to these Greeks and he goes to the synagogue and he goes to this marketplace and he says to them, now God has overlooked, but now there is a day, an appointed day of judgment. Here's something maybe... Uh, you can log into the back of your mind. In your New Testament, there are two phrases, end times and last times. End times is what we typically think of when we think of the return of Jesus. The New Testament authors, though, would talk a lot about last times. The idea is a clock is counting down. We are getting towards the end. And that is what he's saying to these Greeks. He's saying, look, God held back, but there is now judgment coming. Who shall hold us accountable? Well, Paul says it is Jesus. Jesus shall judge. 
Paul provides the proof in the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. And we pointed this out in Easter. This is the point of credibility. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead is, it makes his message and who he is credible. Now then Luke closes by telling us two things. First of all, that for this intellectual group, this idea of someone rising from the dead was untenable. They couldn't, this is nonsense to them. He tells us there was a second group that was willing to come back and continue to debate the matter. But then Luke tells us there's a third group, a third group that claved unto Paul and believed. And in fact, Luke tells us about two. He says there were others, but he wants to point out two. And I I sat and I wondered, why would Paul just pick out two what seemingly random people? But I think he does this on purpose to highlight the transcendence of the gospel. Because the two people that he lists here are more than likely a Greek philosopher. So one of those professors at a university. And likely a common woman. So see the picture that Luke closes with. You have a Jewish man preaching a Christian gospel and a university professor and a common woman get saved. This transcendence, this is what unites humanity not not only in our condemnation but one simple thing, the call to believe in Jesus Christ. Now, you've heard me talk about this a lot, and one thing I want to make clear is understanding the world around us does manufacture sins. What do I mean by that? The world around us loves to highlight things and make them sin that God never calls sin. Now, conveniently, when the world decides to manufacture a sin, it always seems to be the sin of other people. Not their sin, someone else's. And the other thing that happens when they manufacture sins is that it's typically conveniently able to cover up their own. For example, when being in authority and being in a place of privilege is a sin, then your bitterness and envy is justifiable. When the color of someone's skin is sinful, it's easy to hide your bigotry. When it is evil for someone to be a certain gender, it's easy to justify your abuse. But it is not a sin to be black or white. It is not a sin, as I've said, to be an authority or to have privilege. It is not that you must repent for having authority. It's the need to repent if you have abused that authority. It's not a thing to repent if you have a place of privilege. It is if you have used it to oppress others and failed to protect the most vulnerable. God calls us to repent of real sins, not manufactured ones. But remember, repentance is just one side of the story. All people are called to believe. And clearly, your ethnicity does not keep you from coming to Christ and being made clean. Your gender does not keep you from coming to Christ and being made clean. Your education, social status, physical appearance, I praise the Lord for that one, does not keep you from Christ. Your relationship status does not keep you from Christ. As I said just a few weeks ago on Easter, nothing about your past keeps you from Christ. Nothing about your present commends you to Christ. All people everywhere called to repent, called to believe. And what do we see will be the end of it? That people will do just that. Of every stripe, of every color, of every social status, 
You and I will stand hand in hand with kings, with slaves, with Africans, with Chinese, with those who had big houses and those who had little houses, those who raised cows and those who never raised cows. We will be with them hand in hand singing praise and worshiping the God of the universe. And this is good. So we should expect it not only to come, but even in this life. For what binds us together is our call to repent, and what binds us together is our need to believe. So when it comes to the issue of racism in the gospel, these are the three ideas I want us to consider over the next three weeks. Inside of every person is a need to explain their world, to explain the, the experiences they have. And this world will never fail and will never hesitate to try and provide an answer for that experience. So we must, as the people of God, speak the wisdom of God concerning these issues. Secondly, that the world is not flat. God has put many distinctions into this world. Did you know, for example, I was looking this up, do you know there are 31,000 different kinds of fish? Of the 7 billion people on this planet, do you think a few of us are different? I see some different people this morning. But all those distinctions are there to preach to us and to help us make him known. And then lastly, the unifying human idea of Scripture is this, the simple reality that we are called to repent and believe in Christ. On these things, we will have this conversation over the next few weeks. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word and the fact that it does cut through and cut past. And I pray, Father, for those who need to repent, we would repent. But, Father, let us not be guilty or feel guilty. Let us not repent of manufactured things. Let not the world lay before us guilt that we do not owe. But I pray, Father, we would be open and ready to repent of those things which you do declare our sin. And, Father, pray we would never hesitate to preach the gospel, to share the wisdom of God in even matters that are hard like this. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to always come back to our universal need to repent and to believe. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.